Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where Catholic truth is served fresh daily. We've made you a reservation in the luxurious corner booth, so come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzezemski. Greetings and welcome to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff, sitting in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe, made ever more luxurious by our guest, Leah Jacobson. Hi, Leah. Hi. <laughs> I'm so glad you're back here with us, and we're talking about feminism. Sam, Ziggy Rodriguez. Ziggy, it's so good to have you here. Oh, it's so good to be here. That's right. And uh, uh, the, and our our first episode on this, um, talking about Pope John Paul II uh, and feminism and his views and what and what he's done for our our culture and our world by revealing some beautiful truths that come uh, from straight from God through the church uh, about womanhood, about women, about uh, feminism. Uh, this is so eye-opening and so beautiful. Um, and so we're going to continue this. We gotta, we're doing a series of uh, six episodes of the Catholic Cafe, and we've invited Leah Jacobson to be here for all six of those. And we're going to really sort of break open feminism and all of the um, uh, related topics that are outshoots uh, f- uh, from that main tree trunk of feminism you know, good and bad and ugly and beautiful, and see if we can't uh, um, help some folks with uh, bringing this new feminism uh, into into view, uh, into fruition. So, um, we're we're I'll, I do want to mention, of course, that Leah uh, is a wife and she's a mother of seven. She's from Minnesota. She's uh, CEO and founder of the Guiding Star Project. Find out more about Guiding Star at guidingstarproject.com. She's also uh, the author of a new book called Holistic Feminism, Healing the Identity Crisis Caused by the Women's Movement. You can get that thing on uh, uh, lumenpress.org, L-U-M-E-N press.org. It's also available on Amazon. So, Leah, I'm, I'm so glad we're going to continue this conversation, and we're going to delve into something now. Um, I don't know. It may seem like crass and whatever everything seems to be about money these days uh but but there are ties to this sort of old version of feminism mm-hmm. uh and essentially to consumerism to uh, to money to capitalism to this idea of you know making more money and getting ahead yeah yeah you know we mentioned in this first episode about John Paul II and his call to a new feminism and he made that statement in 1995 and he had been leading up to it for years, you know, in his talks on theology of the body and just the importance of women's contributions as women and pointing towards the nature of women as really unique and vital to the life of society. When he finally came out and said new feminism, I think he had been watching the previous 20 years of the women's movement where women were no longer finding their sense of self and their identity and just being a daughter of Christ, but they were creating these lives that were incredibly successful and productive and career-based uh, and really trying to create um, happiness in some ways. And so he was, he was giving them um, permission to just be, to say, you don't have to do everything. You don't have to try to you know, put a bunch of credentials behind your name or publish a bunch of books or do all these different things. If you're called to that and God wants you to do that, beautiful, wonderful, but you as you are are treasure. You are gift. You mm. are genius. You know the most successful woman I know is my wife. <laughs> mm. She's 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 a beautiful example. You know, as mother of nine, you're mother of seven. That's awesome. Uh, and just uh, and, and and that's in a culture. First of all, when you say, I know you've experienced this many many times with 
you know, Jacobson party of nine. <laughs> uh, people are like, what? You know? Yeah. Because uh, we've done the same thing. And when someone says, well, how many kids do you have? Yeah. And there's always that look on their face yep. that speaks <laughs> volumes. <laughs> well, sometimes it is. And occasionally, uh, and I've, we've gotten this on occasion, it's like, oh, that's such a blessing. Yeah. There are people that yep. recognize the blessing that's there. You do see them. And it's interesting. Oftentimes, they're some of the people that are uh, the least, you know, successful by a culture's terms, but they're the people that have lived something hard. You know, they've lived death in the family or they've lived a loss mm-hmm. and they can see life is beautiful and life is joy and the more at the table the more fun and laughter you have you know yeah it's the people that have lived lives that are very uh controlled and kind of regimented that tend to see others especially children uh as liabilities um and so yeah you say liabilities and that and and a lot of times we look at that from the financial aspect mm-hmm. right all the things that it's going to constrict your family you realize yeah. if you have a lot of kids then you can't dot 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 and you go down yeah. a list of things you can't do yeah your life is now constricted it's limited uh you've got all these obstacles to overcome well it used to be the measure of success right the mark of a successful life was having many kids you know and that goes mm-hmm. back to, to ancient Jew, Jewish yeah. culture, they didn't have a concept. The ancient Jews didn't have a concept of heaven. Your approach to immortality was having lots of kids, right? You know, the promise of Abraham. The reason he was such a such a blessed man was he could stare at the sky and know that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. Yeah, you know, we don't. That's that's something that has completely changed these days the notion of many kids being a sign of success is a complete different definition of success now and young and young people i mean when they get married when i'm doing marriage prep it's one of the first things i ask them well how many kids do you want to have mm-hmm. just to see where they are yep and the majority of them they want to have 2.2 kids i mean they just like i want to have well you know, that's a, that's above the national average well now. i know yeah, i know so <laughs> at least they, they tend to be well because you know it's usually um, the people that choose to get married now, you know, kind of little more get it because a lot of people just choose not to get married. That's true. That's true. And I think there is becoming a little bit more of an awareness of the gift of child in our current culture. We're, we're dealing with skyrocketing rates of infertility. We're dealing with so many couples yeah. that are trying, that have a great desire to welcome children into their home. And, and that's been a really good, I think, counterbalance to a culture that's saying that children are liabilities and children are just costing us and children are a burden. Seeing the couples that desire children that cannot has been a very good eye-opening counterbalance to that argument. Um, and so, you know, couples that deal with infertility, my heart my heart just goes out to them, but I thank them for their witness of saying, I desire children. Yes, amen, amen. And, and we, as uh, what you will experience, you're a much younger person than I, but what, what we have experienced is we have some friends that only have the one or two kids. And they're great kids, good family, good parents. Um, and yet there's this sort of, uh, I don't jealousy may be the wrong word, but they're looking at, looking at us mm-hmm. and realizing that we still have kids in the home. We still have a lot of stuff going on. We still have big Christmases. We still have, yep. everything just seems to be like there's much more joy, whatever. And then you've got the empty nester version of things, which tends to be um, not always what it's cracked up to be. Yeah. Well, it's funny. In our neighborhood, we're in small town, you know, central Minnesota, and we have the house on the block with the seven kids that are incredibly loud and screaming and running around and jumping on the trampoline. And we have many neighbor children in the couple blocks surrounding us that are only children. And throughout the summer, they all end up in my yard, and we have popsicles on the trampoline every day, but they gravitate towards the life and the energy. The EWTN lawyers have just called us and said, please do not eat popsicles on trampolines. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, that's the beauty of having, you know, a uh, big family, right? It is. It's All a joy. The, it's, it's joy. You're surrounded by uh, love and fun and, you know, occasionally scraped knees and, you know, cries of mm-hmm. help, help. But the reality is it's really a beautiful, beautiful uh, thing to see that. And I think people recognize that. So this idea, though, that feminism, especially the old, the, the old version of feminism, what people traditionally understand as feminism, which we're saying is not a good thing, um, and how it's tied to consumer culture. Help us understand some of that. Yeah, I think it's a, maybe it's helpful to even just give you a really brief uh kind of understanding of feminism as a, as a movement in our country in the United States. You know, we have the first wave of feminism, which was, for the most part, very family-friendly. You know, the first wave at the beginning of the, of the 1900s, being the suffragists, the prohibitionists, you know, working for the 19th Amendment, they loved children. And most of what they were advocating for was to protect the relationship of, of the family. Um, and then we see this breakdown in the 1950s with you know, the publication of Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. And when that book came out, it painted the home and specifically the role of homemaker and housewife as the ultimate restriction of a woman's creativity and of her gifts. And so it really blamed housewifery for all the discontent that women might be feeling, uh, which was really unfortunate because there were many millions of women that were very happy in the home being mothers. Uh, But then the pressure really grew um, (coughs) for women to find creative outlets and not waste their talent, uh, you know, on raising children or keeping a home. Uh, And we morphed into the sexual revolution, which then gave birth to the third wave of feminism in about the 1980s. And that's, you know, we'll get more into that, I think, later, but it's um, more of a gender uh, sort of fluidity of male and female roles just being erased completely where we um you know the binary of man and woman is just kind of completely erased and we just have human so gender equality is determined by gender neutrality under that exactly yeah Yeah. and that's third wave feminism and we're just kind of starting a fourth wave right now so that's you know three general waves that we've been through we're starting a fourth wave it's second wave feminism that we really start to see that problem where it's uh, discounting some of the very natural talents as women as you know as liabilities as restrictions it's her fertility and it's her ability to you know mother that is now seen as what's going to hold her back and so the workplace uh, and career and her education were held up as the avenues to uh, finding fulfillment finding oneself uh, creativity uh, and so women started to really flee the home you saw women entering the workforce at record numbers. Um, you know, we're at a point now where uh, far more women actually hold college degrees than men. Last time I looked at the numbers, I think it was roughly 56% of college attendees are women now. So the, the scale has tipped. More women now are in higher education than men. Um, and more women are beginning to hold um, managerial and high positions in workplaces, which is not a bad thing necessarily. I think the voice of women needs to be represented in all of these institutions and places. And John Paul II would agree. You know, he said, women, wherever you are, bring your feminine voice. Yep. But the problem is, in many of these places, the voice <clears throat> that they're bringing forward is just a parroting of more a, a masculine voice. It's more of, it's the same sort of, I'm, you know, not going to necessarily be a mother or advocate for mothers. I'm going to be the single focused, you know, very strongly dominant leader that sometimes is associated with men. Women are almost parodying it in some ways, which is unfortunate. And, you know, uh, this whole idea of a sort of a consumer culture feminism, 
um, is it's not being helped by the businesses themselves. I mean, some of these big corporations are actually uh, encouraging and and creating it, uh, making a much more difficult situation for um, a woman to become a mother in the natural process uh, of her life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so my my profession actually is I'm a board certified lactation consultant, and so I work with breastfeeding women, and you know most policies at at large corporations they give you know roughly a four to six week maternity leave and mom goes back to work many don't provide spaces for her to pump breast milk they don't make it possible for her to be mom and employee they want her to be productive and they want her to be an employee the mother part of it they're willing to kind of give a nod to because there's federal protections now and and, and 12 weeks is really what's considered psychologically needed right four to six weeks is what's common but 12 weeks is is actually what the mother and the baby well and i would honestly argue that i would say 12 months i mean honestly there is a time there where you are adjusting to a new little human in your life and and there's a very natural, I mean, we refer to the mother and the baby as a dyad. You know, medically speaking, they still exist together. They're symbiotic. They should exist. They need one another for their mental health, for their physical health. And to separate that at any point prior to the baby really weaning is not going to be helpful for either of them. And so businesses, though, that is not helpful to the bottom line. That's not helpful uh, in terms of her being optimized as an employee. And so We've seen, like to your point, Deacon Jeff, you said some of them are almost making it more difficult for her to be successful uh, as a mother. Many of them are actually, you know, dissuading women in with their policies and with the insurance plans that they're offering. We've seen, you know, big companies like Amazon and Google and Facebook even offering egg freezing, you know, as one of the services that they encourage their young, fertile female employees to do to harvest their eggs, freeze them, use them later. And I feel, you know, subconsciously what you're you're saying to women, and maybe it's not even so subconscious. Maybe this is pretty obvious. I mean, it's a pretty obvious statement that we want your young, fertile, energetic years given to our business. We want to monetize that that youthful energy that in past generations would have probably gone to children. And so what I'm asking myself as I'm listening to you, it sounds like what you're saying is that with... Uh, feminism, which is supposed to be pushing for uh, the empowerment of, of women uh, and, and the equality of women, that in the, including in the workplace, in pushing for that, women the they're they're pushing to accommodate. Uh, women have to change themselves to accommodate the workplace as opposed to they're not trying to change the workplace to accommodate women. Is that correct? Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, absolutely. I think that you nailed it right there on the head. I think what second wave feminism, some of the concerns that I think, you know, Betty Friedan put forward in the feminine mystique, she wasn't entirely wrong. There was a very strong societal expectation for women to be housewives, to be married, to stay home. It was, you know, a lot of things were being said about women, you know, like they're just, they're not cut out for work. They're too whatever. They're too, you know, hysterical or whatever you know some negative things were being said about women and so her natural response was to fight back and to say you know women belong wherever men are now what should have happened at that point they should have said some women some women belong in the workforce but they took a much more blanketed approach to it and said you know really housewifery housewife is the problem like that that can never be a fulfilling place for a woman to live out her gifts Uh, And so women, you know, it was kind of a bullying almost, you know, it was a... Yeah, you've you've mentioned that it's almost like women are shamed out of the house. 
there shamed is shame. out of motherhood. I would say there is a bit of shame. Like if you want to be a, a card carrying feminist, you kind of got to lock step and not necessarily you know appreciate and and embrace your female body. Do you think that first wave of feminism? Do you think they they saw that because it really the way I'm looking at it, as you've if you you presented in these these various waves. Um, you know, is that first wave is really, it's really a philosophy. It's really a theory, mm-hmm. an unproven theory that somebody launched into space and then basically said, well, let's look at this, that people started to glom onto that took hold. And I don't know that it's ever been that first initial theory where there were some, there yeah. was some truth to it, but there also there were some great falsehoods and some bad conclusions made and assumptions that were bad. Yeah, that I don't think people really recognized what effect it would have on the society. Well, interestingly, you know, they had a decision to make in that first wave on what their issues really were. And if you look chronologically at the same time, Margaret Sanger, you know, who we all know now to be the the founder of Planned Parenthood, she was actually active in speaking and being arrested for violating Comstock laws. Same years, 1910, you know, 19th Amendment isn't ratified until 1920. It's the exact same decade where their work is overlapping. But it never comes together. They, she's never considered one of the first-wave feminists. Margaret Sanger is considered a second-wave feminist in theory because they absolutely are two completely different theories. Um, the one thread that I would say connects every wave of feminism is a sense of victimhood. It is a sense of, you know, mm. we've been wronged. There is somebody that is oppressing us, something that is oppressing us, and that we as women need to come together to break that. And, you know, some of them are real oppressions. Some of them are legitimate concerns. Some of them are a bit more imagined, in my opinion. But if we look, first wave feminism was really galvanized as um, a victimhood from uh, a male system of government. It was women being excluded from the vote. It was women being excluded from property rights. Um, It was kind of a distrust of men, a a victimhood from the men. Uh, Second wave feminism, though, is a complete departure from that. I guess it grew upon it. It it still had a distrust of men. It didn't think that men had women's best interests at heart. But really, we became victims of our female bodies. It became our own biology. It became our fertility, our childbearing, our breastfeeding. That was what was going to hold us back. That was the glass ceiling, was our own body. And so the one thing that should have united us and kept us together and had a sisterhood effect was the thing that we threw out. Mm. We suppressed it. We and, altered it. Yeah, the it. suppression part. That's And that's the kind of the scary part that I think a lot of people don't recognize. And it's not specifically just about feminism or about the female body. But when, when you treat parts of your your body, your psyche, your makeup, your who you are as like spigots that you can turn on and off. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to relegate certain things to the uh, to the basement, never to be used. Yep. That's not, I mean, you, you t- we, we mentioned natural law on the first show, just the fact that like Guiding Star utilizes natural law. I remember mentioning that. But, um, you know, natural law is, is kind of important and that's gone out the window as well. And that's what you're talking about when, when, when you're mentioning that it's not, you're no longer constricted as a woman just by men, right? It's also by your own body, by nature. Nature has punished you. Yep. What, yep. what are ways that women are, are having to suppress and change their bodies in order to uh, try to, to compete in the, in the rat race, so to speak? Well, if we look at what you know, is considered successful and what is held up you know, as celebrated in the workplace, most of the 
most until very recently, most of the things that have been celebrated have been very masculine. The traits, uh, the leadership qualities, how we explain um, somebody who's doing well at their job. It's not necessarily, you know, a servant type. Not that women are servants in any way, but women do sort of have a more of a natural. um, We had talked a little bit about that emotional capacity. Um, They tend to be the people that would hold a group together. And the workforce is very, um, tends to be a little bit cutthroat and individualistic. It's dog eat dog. You know, you climb up the ladder and whoever is in front of you, climb over them. Versus a female-led workforce would be much more, let's hold hands on our way up the ladder. Like, if it truly had the feminine qualities, we would be elevating together. Um, And that does not seem to be happening. And so women that are going to be successful in the current kind of atmosphere of corporate America are forced to climb over. And I think in many ways that's very opposed to our natural gifting. I think it's opposed to the way that women desire the workforce to be, and it's going to be unfulfilling. You know, I remember when uh, there was a lot of talk about, you know, us being close to the first female president. One, one of the cable news shows they had, um, you know, one of the talking heads on the on the show there who had some really interesting points. They said that when there's a when we have our first female president, whatever that might be, um, in all likelihood, her leadership style is going to be very different from a man's leadership style, and that and the example that. Was that she gave was that men will tend to kind of place themselves men who who rise to levels like president they'll place themselves on a huge uh, you know high status pedestal position and they'll be speaking out to the people below them to 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 galvanize them and give them their orders and send them the troops out they said whereas a, a female leader is much more likely to be on the same ground with everybody else in the middle of a circle, mm-hmm. engaging everybody around them in that circle directly. And I, I found that very, very uh, fascinating as a uh, as a description. Do you think that that's fair in terms of a uh, a difference between men and women in leadership? Yeah, I think it's it's. It's a generalization for sure, but I, I think it is fair to the natural gifts that we've seen outlined for women. I think John Paul II does a tremendous job outlining the strengths of women and, and saying they're part of our strengths and part of our genius, and, and that that tracks with it. Um, I think the danger is when we start to attribute words, you know, like protector or something only to men, because mm-hmm. you're going to see, you know, almost that mama bear response when those close to a woman are threatened Mm. you know that's where her her ferocious nature is going to come out it's there um it may be a little governed in different situations differently um we can't be so shallow with our, our our gendering of words as to eliminate you know certain words from the sexes um you know there are men that are incredibly um tuned in to their emotions they're insensitive maybe um so that's not necessarily a feminine trait alone it's also part of masculinity um but it's it's in the complementarity of man and woman where man and woman are working as partners in our society that we're going to see a really good healthy balance and right now i would say that the corporate world the work world is incredibly masculine it's out of balance because a lot of the qualities of women have been deemed weaknesses um and so women hide them. They do not celebrate parts of their, of their unique, um, you know, hormonal shifting self because that is not welcome. There's not room for that. Um, so you think a male-female complementarity in the workplace could be potentially a better way for men to also express 
their gifts as well and be more balanced if if they're balanced out by women who are able to bring in the feminine genius? I think in many ways it would be very freeing for men because I think that this very competitive, productivity-driven workplace, I think it hurts men just as much as it hurts women. I think men are not free, you know, to have a bad day. You know, I, I feel like sometimes men feel a lot more pressure to always be on their game, to always be cutthroat when that's not good for them either. Yeah, amen. Uh, there's just a lot to consider here. Uh, what about like organizations like Planned Parenthood and and what they're doing uh, to this in this consumer culture and what 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 image they're putting on on mm. femininity, childbirth, pregnancy, fertility. Yeah, well, I mean, they've absolutely bought into a masculine kind of framework of success. You know, the women that they put at the helm of Planned Parenthood tend to have less qualities of femininity than the average woman. They're sometimes very hard for women to actually identify with because they don't look or feel like the women that we know in our own lives. Um, but I think Planned Parenthood does a tremendous job of selling their primary products, which are, you know, all about fertility suppression and motherhood suppression, you know, with the contraception and abortion. Right. They are using, uh, I really think, shame. I think they are using the formula of shaming women's natural bodies uh, to uh, prolong this sort of masculine framework. Um, right, and they don't even, it's like unwitting, uh, like pushing the female, the feminine Jesus genius down, right? Just unwittingly, because they're supposed to be exalting and lifting up. It's, it reminds me of when I was seeing a, a pro-life talk one time, a fertility talk, and they mentioned that, you know, we have this expression in the world, like when a, like a tubal ligation or something, it's like of, of the woman getting fixed. Yes. And, and actually she's getting yes. broken. I, I know. Isn't that she's just actually getting, I, it's ironic. It's odd. It's incredibly ironic, but it's this idea of control that somehow that whatever man can do is better than nature and that we can control birth. We can control everything. And so uh, Planned Parenthood is really the master of this idea that if you are in any way not in control, you are failing. Wow. Amen. Leah Jacobson, uh, CEO and founder of the Guiding Star Project, wife, mother of seven from Minnesota. Minnesota. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here to talk to us about about all this and her book holistic feminism uh lumenpress.org and on amazon appreciate you here uh being here to, to to help illuminate what's really going on with the old feminism and then what it, the potential and the beauty and the gift of a new feminism and so um i i think as we as we go forward we again look to our mother mary to to guide us in all this uh, and the ultimate feminist, right? <laughs> uh, how beautiful she is. And let's ask her uh, to pray for us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy, Holy Mary, Mary, Mother of God, God pray, pray for, for us sinners, sinners now and in the, the hour of our death. death. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send him an email at deaconjeff.com at thecatholiccafe.com. Visit us on the web at thecatholiccafe.com. You can also find us on iTunes or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association. Join us again at the Catholic Cafe, serving up salvation one cup of coffee at a time.